0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, August 29th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson.
2: Hello,
1: everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good crowd. To all of our listeners in Norway. And to you
2: too, Evan.
3: I have a friend that lives in Norway that listens to the show.
2: I have a friend in Norway,
1: Marit. Marit. Marit.
4: In fact, Marit was the one who helped me with my pronunciation Good evening in Norwegian. And, oh, so it shouldn't
1: be too horrible then.
4: Well, I hope not. She's also, she's the president of the Norwegian Skeptics, by the way. So She's comes, super cool. She's very cool. Got to meet her at TAM. It was very nice speaking with her. So Evan... Right, this day in skepticism. Well, um, September second, nineteen fourteen, and actually, I found a reference that it was perhaps September first, nineteen fourteen, but we'll uh, we'll stick with September second. The passenger pigeon, Ectopistes migratorius, became extinct as the last surviving bird. Of was the killed colorful... in Eden. yeah, right. <laughs> well, basically, <laughs> the last surviving bird of the colorful Native American species of dove. The Imagine
5: pigeon. you kill the last one and you and you eat it and you cook it really poorly and you're like, oh, it man, wasn't shit. worth it. <laughs>
4: take one bite out of it. Ah, oh, that was awful. Scrape, scrape it into the. Into I
5: wish, the I, wish pile. I didn't burn it. <laughs>
4: 1914. You know, it's 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 quite a story actually. Um, the passenger pigeon was hunted to extinction. These pigeons were, uh, boy, everywhere in in. Most of North America in the 1600s and 1700s. They estimated there were three to five billion of these pigeons in the Did United States. Did you say States. million? B, billion. B, billion. They believe that one-third of all birds in North America at its peak of the, of the species of this pigeon were the, were the passenger pigeon. Imagine that. One of every three birds was a passenger pigeon.
5: How, how the hell do you kill so many birds, so many of anything?
4: You eat them primary factor wow. to their extinction emerged when pigeon meat was commercialized as a cheap food uh, especially among slave populations and uh, and other poor people in the 19th century it's amazing it went from you know billions of these things to none of them in the, in, in a couple generations
1: yeah it's like a, it's it's a story that's like it's so perfect it's almost made up it was the most populous bird in North America i mean you hear stories about Flocks of passenger pigeons taking hours, if not days, to complete its passage you know, over a certain point, and then it was literally hunt, hunted wow. to extinction. Um, it, well, you know, it was over a period of time. You know, it was yeah, the, months at no, least. I mean, the, the settlers we started to yeah, like really rely upon them for food, and they figured out you know look, look how many of them there are, so they would just you know decimate whole flocks of them.
2: Humans are idiots.
4: Yeah. And the the they only lay the 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 females lay one egg a year. Oh, my uh, as it turned out, so it just could not yeah. keep up with its uh, with its rate of decline that way.
1: I do. I'm looking at a picture here of a specimen of a passenger pigeon. It, it actually looks the wings look a lot like a mourning dove. They have that same coloring and sort of speckled pattern. I was thinking the same but thing. But the the breast and the neck <laughs> is like this red pink color that's really very pretty. It was a pretty bird. Really. Pretty bird. Pretty,
3: pretty
4: bird. bird. You know, this uh, relates to a, a uh, news item that was sent to us uh, this past week by uh, listener Theron from a place called Battle Mountain, Nevada. He claims that it's our first email from anyone in Battle Mountain, Nevada. And I have no way of really knowing that for sure, but I'll take his word for it. And uh, he, t- he tells us that a new bird species has been identified. And in the United States, of all well, places, ha- for the first Hawaii. time in decades. Well, okay. It counts. It, it counts. counts. It's not mainland. It's Definitely not mainland, counts. though, but yes, it's in the U.S. This bird is called Brian's shearwater, or Puffinus briani, from the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, this is the first new species of bird found in the United States since uh, 1974.
1: And you know where it was discovered? Hawaii. In a in a museum drawer. where It was there for like wow. 40 years. <laughs> Somebody was going through a lot of discoveries are made in museum drawers because there's so much crap there that people just haven't sifted through. So some guy was going through identifying the birds. He couldn't identify this one. It's like, yeah, it's some kind of shearwater. This one it it didn't fit until eventually he realized it was a new one I previously unidentified species.
5: Cool. So somebody somebody grabbed that specimen yeah. decades ago or yeah. more. That bird must be a d- Didn't right? know we had a new species. Mis I mislabeled I mean, it as another kind of shear water. Yeah,
4: miss
1: do oh! yeah
5: Yeah.
4: Yeah, but but DNA tests revealed yeah. the difference.
1: Well, he suspected it from morphology but it confirmed do. that it was a different species, yeah. Well, last week we talked about surviving the big quake of odd eleven and <laughs> of two thousand eleven, yeah. and this this week, right on the heels of the biggest earthquake to hit the East Coast in a hundred years, we had one of the biggest hurricanes at the East Coast in a century. Hurricane Irene barreled its way up the Eastern seaboard. I predict a volcano next week. <laughs> next week, or a tornado. Maybe we're due for some tornadoes. Uh, tsunami. Yeah, that's rare. Or maybe a meteorite. Ooh. I'm sticking with a volcano. This is interesting. I mean, you know, so we were ready for it. I mean, because they, they were, obviously, you could see it coming. Got the the, uh, the satellite images. But, you know, you never know exactly where it's going to hit, how powerful it's going to be when it hits. It, it pretty much battered the Carolinas. But then by the time it got all the way up to New England, up to us, it was downgraded to a tropical storm. But that still, uh, still did a lot of damage. Half of Connecticut is still without power. Jay and Bob are without power due to the storm.
4: When you say half of Connecticut, Steve, you're saying saying that figuratively.
1: No, no, no. 51% of homes are without power yesterday. They've only gotten it down to 45% today. 45% of homes are still without power. I didn't hear
3: it was that extensive. The town I live in is still 87% without power. (gasps) Yeah. I actually had a stretch where I did not take a shower for three days Mm -hmm.
5: because of circumstances. And then the storm hit.
2: happens every week.
5: (laughs) Yeah. I I know someone who went through two weeks, no power, for two weeks in Florida in August. So you know it was it was hot, no air conditioning. And that that just you know, I I feel better when I hear about that because two or three days in, you know, in Connecticut in August, I mean I could deal.
1: Two weeks. I know, it's like last week, you know, we sort of laughed at ourselves for getting all uptight over a five point eight or nine earthquake nothing compared to you know a serious earthquake and this this week i mean although this was a serious inconvenience you know and there were there was some damage done there's some flooding but it's nothing compared to obviously like things like katrina which was the the worst right. probably hurricane disaster ever in the us and uh yeah like what what the the gulf states and the and the, the real southern states go through on an annual basis uh it's just you know it's, it's not it's uncommon for a, a storm of this magnitude to reach all the way into new england but it did
3: i was surprised to see how underwhelming the storm actually looked because it, from what we were hearing, it was going to be epic. But man, it did a hell of a lot of damage. Yeah. I, mean, I guess the, the wind really did knock down a lot of trees that knocked down a lot of power lines. But I something really, really cool happened because of this, and it won't ever happen again, I'm, I'm pretty damn sure. Because there was no power in my town, the sky was pitch black and the storm had cleared out. Yeah. And uh, I saw... For the first time, a density of stars I'd never seen in Connecticut before, but it was just a coincidence that I happened to be outside when the ISS flew by, the International oh, Space I love Station.
1: That. Yeah. Cool. You saw
3: it? It's the second awesome. time in my life I've seen it, and, I, and the first time I saw it, it was much smaller. It wasn't anywhere near as bright. How would you um, know what it was, Jay? <laughs> cause I, for two reasons. One, because... I'm constantly looking up at night, and I have an app on my iPhone that, like, literally shows you where every satellite is and all the planets oh, and wh- which the stars sweet. are. So um, I know I know where the ISS is. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of loosely keeping track of where it is. But, you know, it's, it, it's all over the place, and it's not, like, over you every day. You know what I mean? It,
2: you can track it online through a couple of different websites, like isstracker.com, and there, there's one really good one where you can put in your… Location and it tells you, it tells you the exact when. to the minute when it's yeah. going to be
3: passing and from what direction. Um, the app I'm using is SkyView, SkyView for the iPhone.
1: So a uh, a funny thing happened to the Novella boys at the hurricane. Our parents are moving into just moved into a new house and are excited about the fact that they have the house comes with its own backup generator. And it won't be like nice. a little thing, like you, that you start and goes pop pop. I mean, like a propane powered, really powerful generator that could run the whole house for days. So they they essentially lured us over there with the promise that you know there's going to be power outages everywhere. You know, so come with you know you could be over here, and if the power goes out, our, we'll have the generator. So of course, you know, actually they were watching my kids over there anyway. So we, my wife and I went over there to to be with the kids. And of course, you know, Sunday morning we wake up. There's no power, Whoa. and the generator didn't kick in. It no, didn't no. work. We spent Technical spent all morning trying to get it going, and it, and eventually I figured that it was just busted. I mean, there was a, a light on that said it's busted. Call a maintenance guy. You know, and they, they and we were we got in the phone queue, but there was like no hope of them actually responding to us that day. They were so overwhelmed. No, yeah. So I guess those yeah those generators must be really reliable. But even worse is my parents made no backup plans for not having power because they were counting on the generator.
4: So there was no extra water, So it was, was worse. No-
1: it was worse than having no <laughs> generator because they were, they were even more unprepared. That's funny. Meanwhile, I had power. I never <laughs> lost my power. Yeah. At your house. At my right? own house, yeah. But oh, Steve, boy. it
3: was actually good because we were – we had time to build uh, the Sgu twenty four set. We did work
1: on the set. We did. Ah, so there's that. In part by you know artificial you know lanterns. Jay, speaking of the International Space Station, there's some concern about our ability now to service it.
3: Yeah, it's pretty unfortunate. The Russians were sending up a Progress M twelve M cargo ship, which is perched on top of of one of their Soyuz rockets. It seems that the Progress was not put in the correct orbit. So w- what that means was that it fell and it crashed. Mm-hmm. So the Progress had three tons of supplies for the astronauts that are on the ISS, and it, it, they were also supposed to bring back three of them. Yeah. Double oops.
1: Was that one supposed to, I don't think that, that was an unmanned, just a, a resupply. Yeah, rocket. I don't think
3: – but the crash stopped, you know, that grounded the fleet. Yeah, and so, because of that, they're not uh, picking them yeah, up now. So that
1: rocket wasn't going to bring them back, but the, the, they've delayed the launch of the next rocket, which was supposed to be, which, which was supposed to uh, bring back some of the astronauts.
3: So now three of the six astronauts are, are going to have to wait to return back to, till uh, mid September.
1: Yeah, if if we're lucky, uh, they're they're still not sure what caused the crash, and that's why they're they're delaying any further launches.
3: Well, the the. Uh, Russian space agency have, has had other problems this year too. They had a couple other mishaps happen, uh, mistakes and satellite uh, satellite launch errors and things. I mean, they they fired the head of the program in December, you know. So they're having some problems, and you know, I think it really is coming down to money. So it, this, is, you know, I, I was telling you guys, we, we've talked about this a few times. And I'm really disappointed that they they land they grounded the space shuttles, and uh, it's like, where are we now? You know, we thought Russia was supposed to have it together, and and you know, now we have this problem it's kind of scary, I would be really pissed off and upset if I was one of the astronauts up there right now,
1: yeah, well, they have enough supplies for a while it 's not like that you know they're they're now going to go hungry the, but the next one better you know better work if there's any long term problems and they the, we talked a couple weeks ago about the private corporations who are Working on, you know, working with NASA to be able to run resupply missions to the ISS. But we're in the gap, you know, so no shuttle, no private fleet. We're totally dependent on the Russians and they're having major problems. What's the backup of the backup, right? So this is a potential. Yeah, it's worrisome. like the, the generator no, didn't kick on, so what's the backup, <laughs> it's
3: right, Steve? <it's laughs> <Yeah. laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. But I guess if you're, you know, one of the private companies, this is an incentive to like really accelerate your program. You know, like we 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 need this. They're also saying that they may have to bring the astronauts back and leave the ISS without any without any staff for a while with no astronauts.
5: Oh boy. Let
1: the robots handle it all. Yeah, well, they, that's the other way to go. Is let the robots handle it exactly.
4: Now, I know this wasn't part of the article, but I thought we read recently didn't bring, didn't get a chance to bring it up on the show. That the ISS is going to be done in ten years or so. Yeah,
1: everything has a lifespan. Yeah, well,
3: that's interesting, right, Evan? Like, why, why wouldn't it just be up there for another 20, 30 years? Like, is there wear and tear that oh, they yeah. can't fix? Or yeah,
1: oh yeah, there's that, and the orbit, uh, they can't
4: maintain the orbit. Perhaps can decay after a while, and um...
1: well, they're maintaining the orbit. I think it's maintain- I yeah, think it's mainly but... that there's lots of micro pitting and radiation damage and. You know, things wear out eventually the, just the whole infrastructure they won 't be able to keep it going anymore. you know will become too dangerous we We talked about remember parking one of the shuttles in the space station and we yeah. actually got some really good feedback from people who know what they 're talking about, and that was one of the things they said that you can 't leave the shuttle up there forever. Being in space is a lot of wear and tear because of you know, of all those things you know micro pitting you know small impacts, radiation et cetera, and then eventually the electronics and everything will wear out. All right, well, Bob, tell us about the Large Hadron Collider and it's spoiling the uh, party for supersymmetry yeah, right.
5: buffs. Is it Hadron or Hadron?
1: Yes. Hmm.
5: Okay. <laughs> so, like Steve said, scientists have recently made a the, fairly interesting
1: announcement regarding, uh,
5: regarding an experiment run by the LHC or the Large H Collider. Don't um, you mean the L
1: hacks? The L hack, that's what I meant. Yeah. L <laughs>
5: hack, oh, good one. I like that. Well, it seems that they may have delivered a near-fatal blow to the concept of supersymmetry. Now, this announcement was recently made at the, get this, the Lepton-Photon Science Meeting in Mumbai. How cool is that science meeting? The Lepton-Photon Lepton, Science photon. I love it. Now, this, uh, th- this most detailed experiment to date of its kind was run on the LHC Beauty Experiment, which is um, one of the four main detectors that they've got embedded in the, in the collider ring. And um, so what the experiment showed, and, you know, it might sound kind of like, well, so what? But the, the, the ramifications are, are fairly interesting. It showed that certain particles, I think they were B mesons, decayed less often than we thought. And it also showed, among other things, that matter, certain matter and antimatter particles decay too similarly. The difference should be greater if supersymmetric particles existed. Now, we've, I think we've touched on supersymmetry very briefly before. But uh, this is the theory that states that in addition to all particles that we know so well – there's also these related so-called super particles that they're just like their partner particles, but they differ pretty much only by a half unit of spin, and spin in quantum mechanics is it's a type of angular momentum, but it's really kind of weird. Look it up if you really want some details on that, because that was really kind of hard to, to wrap your head around. But um, So these are called super partners. These particles are called super partners, and you know, I never really – I always had a – a problem with supersymmetry because it just seems like, oh yeah, with this theory we're going to double all particles. Now there's twice as many as we thought. It's like, oh great, didn't we have enough? So I always had a bit of, a, of an issue with supersymmetry but it's still kind of sad to see such a, a theory with such potential to, to conceivably go down in flames, which they might have done because this, is, this was a really detailed experiment and they, a lot of people think that, yeah, they really should have got a really solid hint of that these particles exist. It doesn't seem like they did. A little bit more technically, I uh, with su- a supersymmetry, each boson has a fermion partner of the same mass and quantum numbers, except for that small spin difference that I that I talked about. And fermions are are matter particles, and bosons are are force carriers. And the, generally, those statements apply all the time. Now, supersymmetry is important because it can potentially offer some really key information about really some really puzzling aspects of particle physics, like dark matter, for example. It, they think that it could could have shed some Important information on dark matter. Um, Higgs boson, uh, which has been in the news for years now, especially with the LHC, um, the particle that could potentially be the author of all mass everywhere. Uh, super Supersymmetry could have also potentially have helped with that. And also, I wasn't aware of this, that it's really, uh, supersymmetry is really tied, it's tied in intimately with string theory itself, because lots of, most versions of string theory, and we know there can at times be lots of different versions of string theory, but a lot of these uh, theories include supersymmetry in it. And if they actually shoot down supersymmetry, then a lot of these string theories are going to have to be completely revised, which is really not good at all. So what's
1: interesting about this, Bob, is that supersymmetry, one thing that struck me is that supersymmetry essentially what they're saying is it had a lot of explanatory power it was able to explain yes. dark matter the higgs boson and some of these aspects of cosmology like string some string theories etc but it, yes. but the the second component to being a legitimate science is that you, a good theory is that you need to have predictive power not just explanatory power and that is where right. the supersymmetry is failing it made predictions about what We should have seen with these LHC experiments. We didn't see them. So it's failed that more important piece to the puzzle of predictions.
5: Yeah, and that kind of ties into a quote I wanted to mention. Um, This. Uh, Dr. Joseph Lykken of Fermilab said, "It's a beautiful idea. It explains dark matter. It, it explains the Higgs boson. It, it explains some aspects of cosmology. But that doesn't mean it's right." And for me, for me that, I really like that sentiment because it, I think it shows a real key aspect of science. Because you know, it can be so easy to succumb yeah. to a theory and defend it at all costs, right? Oh,
1: well, what's that quote by T. H. Huxley? He said, "That's a, a beautiful, elegant theory uh, destroyed by an ugly little fact."
5: Right. (laughs) Nice. Now, of course, as usual, that doesn't mean this doesn't mean that supersymmetry is totally dead. There's other versions of the theory that have not been ruled out by this this latest experimental results. But they're they're much more they're more complex. The 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 simplest theories have been kind of uh, repudiated by these latest experiments. But the more complex versions of the theory haven't been ruled out. And but of course, that means that it could take potentially years for these more complex particles to be found or or conversely that it could take years for the theory to to really get that last nail in the coffin so um, so you, we might be hearing a little bit more of it but it does not look good for supersymmetry
1: yeah yeah i don't you know the whole uh, there are more complicated versions that are not ruled out sounds a little bit like special pleading you know what i mean where a little yeah you know, yeah, the, yeah absolutely if you jury rig it just right you know then you could you could accommodate for all these things does it again doesn't make it wrong just yeah this is a feel good you know it just makes it seem a little bit less yeah. likely
4: well what's the next next I don't most know. likely
1: They're going back to the drawing board right mm-hmm. I mean they don't know they have to well, really you got to s- kind of start no not
5: necessarily I mean yeah some some string theories might need to be revised if they. If they become really, if they really start thinking that supersymmetry is shot, but it's also a a boon for things like uh, loop quantum gravity. It's this is actually good times for loop <laughs> quantum gravity. Well, <because laughs> oh, I'm going to invest
4: in loop loop quantum there, there gravity companies right LQG, now. LQG <laughs>
5: baby, because yeah, <laughs> because string theory and loop quantum gravity—they're both trying to to create this quantum, you know, uh, this theory of quantum gravity but combining um, quantum mechanics and general relativity. And if if um, if, str- you know, if string theory is going to have problems now because supersymmetry is a key Blue is an pop. important part of it, then loop quantum gravity is like yeah. Th- so I think there's going to be a lot more interest yeah. in, in loop quantum gravity, especially by the young. The I'm going to call it
1: L-Quag. <laughs> <laughs> we could do better than that. All right, Re- Rebecca, <laughs> tell us how come we're never going to detect alien signals, and, and SETI's all a waste of time.
2: Oh. Yeah, leave it to me to put a damper on everyone's spirits.
4: Seth is not gonna like that.
2: Sorry. It's not, it's not my opinion. Actually, it is my opinion, but <laughs> my opinion doesn't really matter. It, it actually comes from, uh, British physicist Stephen Wolfram and creator of
5: uh, oh, he doesn't the know anything.
2: Uh, Wolfram Alpha uh, Project, which yeah, is
5: a also, lot of fun to play I, with. I love him, I was kidding. Wolfram. <laughs>
2: You're like, I love him. Please don't hurt me. Yeah. Love him.
5: No, he's this guy. Like, he's a crazy genius. I mean, he's like super crazy smart.
2: Yeah, he is a genius. He was like a child prodigy, I think, mm. as well. Um, and unlike, I think, most child prodigies, he continued to be brilliant throughout his life. Um, mm. at least up until now. Uh, yeah. not, not that, no, 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 I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> sure, you did. I just meant that he could get stupider in the future. I don't know. Um, this is all turning out always, terribly wrong. You okay. might <laughs> like <the> brain damage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, thanks, uh, uh, thanks for anticipating that. I'm just going to start it. Anyway. No, um, anyway. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. He's uh, he's published a book, and I think it's all available for free online, um, which is kind of awesome. Uh, you can get it in hard copy as well, but if you go to wolframscience.com, you can find it in in full so that's cool and it's called uh, a new kind of science and in it he talks about his revolutionary ideas which include i guess the the biggest one is the idea that uh, our entire universe is based upon a very simple computer program that is creating complex life due to a sort of um Due to the data it's putting out, sort of feeding back into it, and so then
5: recursive, yeah,
2: yeah, that's recursive. That's the word. Um, so uh, that's that's the the big thing that that he's talked about, and that I think a lot of people are talking about. But also, yeah, he talks about how um, the the way that our technology has evolved has been to reduce the total amount of of leaked uh, signal. You know that we we were making them very precise, and because of that, he's guessing that uh, extraterrestrial life would probably be similar, and so would make their signals very difficult to detect, and our own signals have become difficult to detect. So uh, he says that alien civilizations could be extraordinarily close to us, yet still not be making such a fuss, you know, not not be putting out any kind of signal uh, that would allow us to find them. So Yeah, I mean, it's an yeah, interesting it's, idea, uh, this
1: notion that, I mean, by compressing data, you squeeze any recurring patterns out of the data, because right. any, any recurring pattern you can then, you know, you can encode more simply. So eventually, when you completely compress data to its most efficient form, it looks like random noise. So it, it wouldn't be... If we if we detected it, we wouldn't be able to distinguish it from distinguish it from a natural signal. No. That's an interesting idea. However, what we're looking for is a deliberate carrier signal, right? Yep. We're looking yeah. for a right. beacon saying this is an intelligent signal, yeah, like contact, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and then the data will be compressed along with it, you know, in some format, and that may be indistinguishable from background noise. But that's not what's going to get our attention, right?
2: Yeah, I guess that the idea, though, previously was that even if a civilization isn't putting out a specific welcome mat, the, the signal they're producing just in their everyday lives would at least serve as some sort of sign that they're there. Um,
1: yeah, but that was but, always kind of a low hope anyway, because in order for a signal to reach us and be detectable... It would have to. It would have to be either directed at us. at us, or it would have to be so massively powerful if it was just going out in all directions. It wouldn't be just the leakage of signals from yeah. a civilization. They would have to be putting massive amounts of energy into that signal. Or again, they would have to be sort of aiming it in our direction for whatever reason. So anyway, but yeah. So if, if there was a nearby star that was just leaking you know, electromagnetic radiation that they were used for data. Uh, caring, yeah, it might be compressed to the point that we wouldn't notice that it was not a natural signal. That's, that's a good point. But I don't think it's really ultimately relevant to SETI because it's not what we're looking for.
2: Yeah, so shut up, Stephen
1: Wolf. I mean, you're not so yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> <not> yeah. <laughs> but Rebecca, I sent you this other news item. I, mean, I know you read it really quickly. I said everybody this, the scientists warn that aliens may come to destroy us. Did you guys read that?
2: But yeah, oh, that's boy. definitely going to happen. Oh, yeah.
1: I couldn't get past the title. So, I mean, the, the line here that just cracked me up was – so this is talking about a study, but I don't know what the hell this – what they were studying. It really (laughs) is just sort of sheer speculation where the author writes, a core concern is that ETI, extraterrestrial intelligence – We'll learn of our presence and quickly travel to earth to eat or enslave us. <laughs> those are the choices? <laughs> that's my favorite line <laughs> too. Yeah. yeah, those are the two options. <laughs> quickly travel to earth. Quickly.
5: Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah.
2: And I like there, how, like, the, the implication I think is that on the way they're having an argument about which they're gonna do. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. I'm hungry. I want well, slaves. <laughs> half of us
4: and enslave the other.
2: No, Mordoc. We had <laughs> slaves last time. Sure. Yeah, we'll enslave
1: half of them. Half of them and eat the other half. It's like a Futurama (laughs) skit. (laughs) Yes. How to cook 440 humans. (laughs) We've achieved
3: intergalactic flight, but we must eat human Uh, flesh. Those humans aren't sitting
4: well.
1: (laughs) Evan, it's time
4: for Who's That Noisy? Yep, so let me go ahead and play last week's Who's That Noisy for everyone. In case you forgot exactly what it was, here it is again. No one has an explanation for it. The fact that it disappeared, like it was some sort of evil oasis in the middle of the night, and that was the most supernatural, strange thing that I've ever in my life experienced. Any guesses by...
1: I have no idea. I only know what I've read on the forums. Nope.
4: No clue. Anyone ever heard of Marilyn Manson? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Marilyn Manson. Very cool. I mean, it wasn't much of a stretch to... Think that perhaps someone
1: like that would? What do you mean by that? Like by somebody like that? Well, celebrity, celebrity. Ever yeah. Because <laughs> have you ever seen Bowling for Columbine? Yeah. Well, yes. Marilyn Manson was in that movie. He was the only cogent person in that whole movie. Yeah, he's he's, right. actually, he's really awesome. He's a bright guy. Yeah, he's like a down-to-earth, rational guy.
3: Yeah, that whole the whole thing with him, it's it's more of you know that was a vehicle to get him to where he wanted to go. But he, he is very intelligent. That was him featured on the show
4: Celebrity Ghost Stories, which I've actually watched a few episodes of, because it makes, in a way, shows like that make famous people seem a lot more like average, very ordinary people. Oh, no, is that right? You, oh, you hear some of the stories they tell. It's like, oh, that's, par- that's pareidolia. Oh, that's, uh, that's hypnagogia. Oh, that's, you know, you can just kind of pick it out. They have the exact same experiences. Because they
1: are has. ordinary people.
4: Well, I get that. I get that. But, you know, it's, uh, it takes, takes the shine off a little bit. Right. It makes them uh, a little more approachable in a sense. Aaron from St. Louis. At least I think it's St. Louis. Aaron STL from the message boards was the first one to guess correctly. Well done, Aaron.
1: I think that's from uh, Saturn's Lagrange point, actually. STL.
4: I guess Aaron will have to let us know. <laughs> I'm sure he'll clarify that for us. <laughs> know, uh,
1: all right. Either. What have you got for this week?
4: Here we go. This week's Who's That Noisy? Oh, another person. Here we go.
0: If you have any type of body injury or pain that represents an energy blockage, that that be
1: helped or healed. If you would just simply, kindly just have a, a prayerful blessing, it would be appreciated. Now, how do they think this energy is being blocked? By other energy? Oh, by stress. Toxins, toxins block your energy. Oh, yeah, they Toxins
3: huge. is the big one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, but when we say energy, you know, I can only think of – I'm thinking more of spiritual or – Well, the key word there is, Jay, is that you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> what are you thinking?
1: <laughs> it's, All right. You know know got me
3: on that one, Steve. I'm just saying, yeah. though. I mean, I don't it's, see how energy gets blocked, you know? It's right. Was well, like awful. when you
1: cut the wires, you know, or I don't know. It's resistance in the lines.
4: It's a very happy, all-encompassing term. It can mean lots of different things.
1: It's a Faraday cage. Did we talk about that last week?
4: We did. We sure Spe- did.
1: Speaking of which, let's go to our first email. This one comes from John the Funky Medic from the United States. Wait, is the Funky email.
2: Medic his last name or? Is so it's John,
1: Truman? comma the Funky Medic. Uh, well, speaking
4: of words that can mean you know multiple things, you know, Funky's one of them.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's <laughs> this is true. <laughs> All right, well, well, John writes, I wanted to bring something to your attention that is probably just a pet peeve. All right, here it comes. Oh, boy. Tin foil, as in foil made from the metal tin, SN, atomic number 50, weight 118.710, was phased out starting in 1910 and pretty much no longer in use by the end of World War II. As I am sure you all know, having been in a kitchen at some point in your lives, it was replaced by the lighter and cheaper aluminum AL, atomic number 13, weight (laughs) 26.982. So nobody on this show was alive when tinfoil was in use, yet the rogues of my favorite science podcast Mm -hmm. say tinfoil over and over again for some reason. This bugs me because I am so used to you guys being thorough to the point of tedium, up on complex science concepts or even pronunciation RFID, RFID, RFID in the same episode. For instance, you would never let anyone get away with saying dry ice was frozen carbon monoxide. You'd dogpile the rogue who said that, and I and it would probably be Jay, and he'd come up with some hilarious reason that he'd said it. <laughs> All right, and then he goes on to say a few other things. But so yeah, we were saying that the word tinfoil when obviously we meant aluminum foil because. Nobody uses tin, actual tin foil anymore. But that's what here's the, here's we the, call it. No
2: one said, yeah, no one, speci- if someone could. had specifically said, you know, and of course it's made from tin, so that's
1: why it blocks <laughs> the,
2: then we would have jumped on him. But this is a common usage, at least in America. Here we go again, common usage.
1: If his if his uh, uh, peeve is a fallacy, what fallacy would that be?
4: The nitpicky Pendantic
3: this fallacy. <laughs> is, this is a
1: bonus name that logical fallacy. Oh, this is really
3: good, Steve. So basically, there is a logical fallacy here.
1: Yes, a very specific one. We actually talked about it previously on the show, so you all know it. Yeah, I don't listen to the show. It. I'm sure we have, but I, I'm it's, not making a connection here. Which show now? It is the genetic fallacy. Ah-ha! <laughs> yeah, the genetic <laughs> fallacy. <laughs> Meaning that the um, fallacy is judging something by its historical use, right? In this case... The term tinfoil is, you know, is appropriate because it's come into common usage to mean, you know, that product, the foil that you use to wrap food or whatever you do with it, not necessarily to refer specifically to foil made from tin. It's just like saying sunrise and sunset and saying, oh, that's wrong because the sun isn't rising, the earth is rotating. That's a genetic fallacy. But the thing is, so they always the, the question that I always ask with with yes, with, so John is correct. It is aluminum foil, and that is actually the name of the product. The term tin foil is is archaic, but but remains in use. It's one of the our language is loaded with with terms like that. We still call the remote control the clicker. You know, we still use terms that refer to the save file. Still looks like a. The
2: save icon still looks like a disc,
1: yeah, yeah, or, you know, the, we, we still we save have. yeah we save files in <laughs> folders, and the icon looks like a manila folder, yeah, i mean there's all kinds of of things like that that are still call things films when they've got when they don 't use film yeah. at all
3: i'm sure that that John gets that, and i don 't think he's saying we must expunge all of these from our our vocabulary, I think what he 's saying though is I mean, to be pedantic and to be a little bit more accurate. Let's call it aluminum foil. You know, it's two more syllables. No, I think it's more than that. <laughs> three, al- lo- It's three, it's three, no. more. Three, al- three, three more, aluminum. No.
1: Close enough. Whatever. Yeah, four. It's three or four, if you say it wrong, like the English did. Yeah. Yeah. Or But the bottom line like is it's not that big of a deal. He wasn't being a jerk. No, no, about it's, it. it was fun. It was fun. No, it's just you know, but no, it's no. Uh, yes. It was partly just to say yes. Of course, we meant aluminum foil. We used the term tin foil because it's also a phenomenon that's very common where a brand name becomes the generic name for that type of thing.
3: Like Xerox. Q-Tip, Q-tip Kleenex. Xerox, Kleenex.
1: I mean, no one says facial tissue. Have you ever referred to it as facial tissue ever in your life? No. N- nor are you going to. Sounds filthy. Yeah. It's
3: w- what's a Q-Tip called? Like an absorbent? <laughs> cotton, <laughs> cotton swab. It's a swab. A cotton swab. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I dropped my cotton swab. Right. That's how you could pick it up with your facial tissue. <laughs> That's how language changes. you know languages are you know living things that change with use, and there's, you know I'm actually really fascinated by archaicism and language, like where did that term come from and 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 yeah. how long terms can remain in use long after their original meaning is completely obsolete? Yeah, like the whole nine yards. You know, five by five, all that stuff. Rule of thumb. Loose cannon on deck.
4: Well, maybe not rule of thumb.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We do have one quick shout-out. Jay, do you want to read this one? Yeah, so this was
3: an email we got in from a listener named Brian Stovikin, And Brian said, Hey, guys. This may be a long shot, but I'm ready to see if you give a shout-out to a co-worker of mine who will be leaving our research group this week to pursue graduate studies. He got me and subsequently my friends and colleagues into the SGU podcast and generally does a great job promoting skepticism and critical thinking. He's been a great person to discuss skepticism and critical thinking with, and we're going to miss him. As you may appreciate, it's hard to find people willing to engage in skeptical inquiry at a conversational level, much less people you really enjoy doing so with. As a going-away surprise, it would be awesome if maybe you could fit in a brief shout-out. Good luck to him. As he departs for school, his name is Jan. Anyway, great job on the podcast. Can't wait for SGU24. So,
1: Jan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that was Jay. shout-out. That's the shout-out. That uh, no, it, it's cool to get emails like this. And you, what it made me think of is it's like every social group, whether it's a workplace or a family or a group of friends or whatever, it's good to have like that one skeptical person in that group to to represent. It's something that everyone could do, yeah. make their little corner of the world just a little bit more critical thinking. And and obviously we greatly appreciate anybody who spreads the word of the SGU and gets more people to listen. So.
3: Good luck, Jen. We'll miss you.
1: Is that better? Yeah, that was good. (laughs) Okay. Okay, we have one real name that logical fallacy this week. Uh, I won't tell you who wrote it. This was uh, just yet. This was um, uh, left. This is a comment left on a blog written by ORAC. This is left on Respectful Insolence. And it was a blog post about Jeremy Sher using homeopathy for AIDS. So listen to this. I'll read the first few sentences. What I find so curious about people who represent themselves as practitioners of skepticism is really how little of it they employ and how predictable they can be in their beliefs. If you're going to be a real skeptic, then the first things you would naturally be skeptical about would be your own beliefs. But instead, what I see you doing is jumping to a conclusion made by others for you, that you're just passing along as talking points, simply placing your own anecdotal theory in place of evidence. It, the physical in vitro in vivo, user demand and FDA regulatory protections. if you had a lake to stand on, you wouldn't be writing blogs about it. You and hordes of people like you would be actually doing something in court. If it's fraud, it can be proven as such in court. He's talking about homeopathy, of course. You guys have any idea who this is?: I know oh, who it I want' to have is. an idea. <laughs> this Whoa. is our old friend, John Bennet friend the, is a weird word it's what, use. We, we use. that. We use the word for, um, euphemistically frequently on this mm-hmm. podcast. He, he's uh, awesome, Steve. <laughs> he's awesome. I love that guy. He's he's awesomely cranky is what you yeah. mean. He's yeah, a, I mean, uh, he is. he's, he's he a rage. He's cranky. just like nonstop rage. He's, he's a homeopath who's definitely tried to take on the skeptics. He made a number of YouTube videos, some yeah. of them attacking me personally. But but he is funny. I mean, come on. The guy is actually entertaining.
2: He's a parody of Not himself. in the way he means to be. He's ironic. It doesn't matter. He's, I mean, ironically, he's,
1: awesome. he's ironically funny, Jay. All right. All right. But let's yeah. get to the well, sentence. So he says, if you had a lake to stand on, you wouldn't be writing blogs about it. You would. You and the hordes of people like you would be actually doing something in court. If it's fraud, it can be proven as such in court. So what fallacy is he, is he committing there? That's a logical fallacy.
0: <laughs> Actually, maybe not. That's
1: good. It may not be a fallacy of logic. So. Yeah. So what's the other... It could be... If it's not a problem, if the argument's not... It's a false... It's like a, a false, false premise. False premise. I think he's got a major unstated false premise, premise yeah. in there. And that is that if something is uh, unscientific or scientifically wrong, that it is necessarily illegal. So he's saying if homeopathy is is a fraud you would be able to prove it's a fraud in court that that's a, there's a false assumption there but the fact is that in the united states at least and in many countries the laws are written that you know have legalized homeopathy Th- those laws were not based upon science it was based upon political advocacy yeah, I mean,
2: regardless, we don't use our
1: court system to determine what is and is not good right, science. Right, right. So, the reason why we're not fighting it in the courts is because the laws don't allow for it. Homeopathy isn't illegal, but it's still utter nonsense. It is, and it's not even necessarily even scientific right. fraud, it's just pseudoscience. It's bad, terrible science. And the claims. Are false. You know, Bennett doesn't actually address the points that were made in the blog post. Doesn't address the skeptical position about homeopathy. He just takes a swipe at skeptics in general. So that's an that's ad hominem. That's so the does. first you know few sentences are all ad hominem. We're not real skeptics, you know. Then he co- then he makes this argument with based upon the the false premise. He goes on. Let me read another sentence. He says, "So really, in the face of reality, that this is a long pr- practiced form of legal curative medicine." Do you really think you have enough of an argument against it to give you license to defame the shares and others who have medical degrees? Of course not. Skepticism really is nothing more than a name people give themselves when they want to dismiss or defame something they don't want to believe. So, let's see. There was an
2: argument from popularity, right? An argument, argument from, from antiquity.
1: From authority. From authority. And then an ad hominem at the other side, right? Homina, yeah, hominem. so. Talking about you know the guy having a medical degree as if that's a guarantee of being correct. Long practiced argument from antiquity. Um, he's trying to say that it's legal, therefore it's legitimate. So there's a false assumption in there, and uh, and then again he defames legitimate skepticism. So it makes an ad hominem logical fallacy. He's, he's really cramming him in there. I mean he's got the you know, he's batting yeah. a thousand. He's doing great.
4: Yeah. I mean, I'd have to try really hard to create something like this that, that had so
1: many fallacies. Right, right, right. All right, well, let's move on. Let's go on with our interview. We are being joined now by Jad Abumrad. Jad, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. Very honored to be here.
1: And Jed is the producer, co-host, and sound designer of the popular radio and podcast show Radiolab. <laughs> Can you tell us <laughs> how, how you got started doing Radiolab?
0: Well, I never actually planned to do, to do radio. I, uh, I, I kind of just saw, my entire life thought I'd be a musician, writing music for films. I kind of had that idea in my mind pretty much since I was like a little kid. And tried to do that for a little while. And it wasn't really working out too well couldn't seem to, to to make a go of it and then somewhere along the way you know five six years out of school i got i got the random I mean, it was truly a random idea to work in radio uh i i never listened to the radio i had i had i wasn't one of those people like who who had a relationship to the radio but it seemed interesting to me because i i had been writing a lot and i'd been doing music and kind of seemed like this two things together so i um i started volunteering uh i started trying to figure out how to report the news for a local station and I kind of slowly started to figure out the whole storytelling thing I don't know, fast forward many many years uh, I was working at WNYC and uh, 9-11 happens and for some reason they, they completely changed the schedule and as a result there were these like big chunks of time that opened up really late at night on Sunday night on the AM station uh, which really no one listens to at all. I didn't know this at the time. I, um, but I, literally they dropped the power at night and so no one can actually hear the radio station at all. So uh, they were like, Hugh, there in the hall in the blue shirt, why don't you do something on Sunday night? And uh, I was like, sure. So they gave me basically a slot where, it. I mean, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I think maybe five people heard it ever. Um, as many people as are on this call and, uh, and uh, I just sort of did that for a while. did it for about a year or so. And and then um, about a year later, I met Robert. We met his friends and we just started, you know, having breakfast. Meanwhile, I was doing this thing on Sunday nights. Eventually, he heard it. I was like, oh, it's pretty good. So then he and I started messing around. I mean, literally no one was listening. No one cared. Uh, we would do little experiments that involved radio theater and we would kind of like just Make make stuff up, and um, I don't know. Two or three years into it, uh, eventually people started paying attention. People in the station, and they moved it to the FM signal, where there actually were people listening, and um, that was kind of the beginning.
2: Where Where did your your science focus come from? Because I mean, your your background is in music, which you can obviously hear in the podcast, but you know, most of your subject matter is science.
0: Well, I mean, my parents are scientists, so I've always been around it. And consequently, for a long time, I went in the opposite way. You know, I was like, I want to do music and humanity stuff and not do science. But I'd always kind of, like, been interested in it. And, um, I don't know, something happened to me after after school. I was maybe, maybe it has more to do with where science was headed rather than what I was doing. Because at a certain point, I mean, I'd always been interested in thinking about Large thoughts and wondering about the sort of the eternal questions. Science somehow, maybe because of neuroscience, maybe just because of a lot of things, science began to somehow become the place where those questions were addressed. I mean, I got into radio to try and do classic kind of this American lifey sort of stories. And at a certain point, I was just getting tired of that and I wanted to do stories that somehow figured out the world and so i would do kind of how it works kind of stories and that became boring to me because that was just like felt very mechanical and so i I began to try and do stories that sort of like accessed larger questions but at the same time gave you a sort of a concrete sense of how how stuff worked inevitably they they ended up you know two or three scientists in every piece so it was never a conscious decision but it was just something like oh you know i'm really interested in time what is time It's not particularly a science question. It's 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 a like get up and look at your clock kind of question, like you know having one of those moments in the morning where you're like, it's seven o'clock. What the hell does that mean, really? (laughs) You know.
3: When I first started listening to Radiolab, I, I did think it was a science show, and that's probably part of the reason why I downloaded it. And of course, it came highly recommended. But after listening to three or four episodes, I started to shift my opinion of it to more of a show about. It's more about uh, like you're telling a story. You have a subject matter. You you know you pick your story. You pick your topic, but you're fashioning you're fashioning a story around somebody's experience. And a lot of times, it happens to be something where there there's a neurological problem or a health problem or an accident or some type of you know something profound in a way. Mm-hmm. I notice that you, you you always bring in a, a tremendous human element into these stories. And I, from mm-hmm. my reading of, of the way that you edit, it does come from your editing more than it comes from your your interview style. Would you agree with that?
0: I don't know. That's an interesting question. Well, yeah. It's, it's kind of everything. I mean, it's definitely the edit. The edit is like – I always think of the editing – I mean, you know, you edit to make a story make sense. So there's a kind of like explicit thing you're trying to do with the edits. But it's often like you're trying to like access the subterranean depths of, of a story – you know, like, what is it that's really happening there to the person that you're telling the story about? And so the the sound choices, the editing choices are trying to kind of get into that place that's kind of like, it's like the story is this little boat sailing on a sea, and you're trying to get de- underneath the surface. And that's what the editing does. But I also think in the interview, um, you're just constantly, it's like, there's a tension. There's a tension in a lot of these stories that where we tell, where it, it is like an experience, but... but the experience is pregnant with some kind of idea that is maybe about something universal to, to the way that humans work, you know? And so you want to somehow understand this this micro story and and honor it. At the same time, you want to kind of like enlarge it and whip out of it at some point to explain something and then go back in. And so the interviews that we do often are, there's a kind of like schizophrenia to it where like you're really, as, it's like very technical. Like I was just doing an interview. Uh, uh, yesterday about like the feedback loop of pain in the body and you're, and you're like okay wait so wait a nerve goes from your finger and it goes to your damn elbow and it goes up your shoulder and then it goes to this thing in your spine and it hits this glial cell and you're like okay now what does the glial cell do and you're like well it kind of amplifies it and you're like well how does it amplify it? is it chemical what happens to the chemicals Do they spill out or do they go somewhere so half the interview is just trying to get the damn details right and that's that's the part where i'm i'm just like i'm just not as a person geared for that, you know, it's not, that's not the part that comes natural to me, but it's like, at the same time, you know, that's your job, that's your responsibility. You just kind of have to know it. But then the other half of the, of the interview is just like, you're, you're trying to get a deep sense of the person you're talking to, trying for a second to truly understand what this person, what they're struggling with, the mechanics of their struggle. Uh, And so it's, it's both really, it's a kind of tension.
2: It's, it's a total tightrope that I think you're walking, and I think you, you guys do it extremely well. In part, I suspect because you are storytellers first and, and science communicators second, which I think for the, greater audience is a benefit because what you're doing is you're spinning this tail with these aspects of science that that people can get absorbed in and, and really appreciate in a in a deeper sense in a metaphorical sense than they would if they were to crack open a textbook but I'm wondering if you get mm-hmm. a lot of feedback from scientists that don't like seeing their work or the work of their colleagues, Represented in that sort of sense, do you get a lot of like angry feedback like that?
0: No, we don't actually get that. We we do and we don't. We don't get it from the people we we interview. I mean, hardly ever. I can think of one case where somebody felt like we got. I mean, there have been times when we got stuff wrong. So like you know, we said dates wrong, or we said you know we misstated certain facts. And um, but that's happened. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that happens to every journalist. I mean, it's kind of the unfortunate thing. But but uh, our subjects are generally not upset with us. In fact, they're kind of excited. Um, and the reason that is is because, you know, it's like when you're trying to do this kind of stuff and you're using all these analogies, you kind of have to go back to the person sort of midstream in the process and be like, okay, look, we're going to do this whole little song and dance. It's going to involve mice in a big, you know, rose bowl type thing. And there's going to be all kinds of singing and this – are you cool with that <laughs> you know and they'll say yeah i am but you need to say this little word right here and it's usually equivocating where it's like oftentimes this will happen or you know the theory goes yeah. so you have to kind of like qualify stuff and so you go back to the person and they kind of help you with that uh, and then they're kind of they're kind of um, if we do our jobs well they're really excited because oftentimes I mean, I know how this is. I grew up with, with scientists for parents and they would tell me about their work for my entire life and I never cared, you know, because it was, it was highly technical. It was just complicated, you know. But then if you get if you tell a story well and it, it, it dances and it's got that movement, then they have the experience of their kids actually caring about what they do for the first time, perhaps. So they're excited. They're psyched. Um, the people that sometimes aren't psyched I don't really know who these people are, but if you look on our website and if you go to any show that we've done in the last um, year, uh, there is like a fairly vocal contingent of, I don't know if they're scientists or if they're kind of like science, watchdog minded science lovers or something, but they, they will yell at us quite a bit. And pedants. Uh... Yeah. And I sort of, in a way, enjoy it at this point. I'm like, okay, they're angry. That must mean we're doing something right. Maybe it means we're doing something wrong. I don't know, but but there there there's a there's a there's a faction of our audience which is constantly demanding that we do more science, we do it more technically. Uh, you know, we do it with less, you know, th- less That bothers fun. me too.
3: I mean, we we're pretty I wouldn't say that we're all hardcore science-minded people here. Or maybe I'm kidding myself. I mean, we to me, you know, our, our show is more of a conversation among family and friends about topics that interest us and we try to be as accurate as we can. But we've had people write in and say your show should instead of being an hour and twenty minutes it should be twenty minutes and you should just get to the facts and you know and, yeah, and could of you cut we, out
1: all the jokes and humor and no yeah we yeah
0: what's the point oh yeah I, we get that yeah. in spades yeah
3: and that's why like anyone that that listens to radio lab and recommends that you guys fill it with more science they're not getting the point of the show and that's you know that's fine but they're missing out as far as I'm concerned
0: yeah and the giggling thing like we get i I can't I could fill a Proustian size volume with emails saying we should oh, laugh gosh. less, that, that seems to bother people like laughing, you know. But but you know it's fine. You know it's like it's I love science. I hate science. Yeah. You know. So it's like I have the, the relationship to science that I have with everything, which is that you love it sometimes, you hate it other times. You know.
2: Well, let's. Um, i I'd, I'd like to use that as an opportunity to talk about one episode in particular that I suspect you must have heard a bit of. Um, feedback on um, maybe negative feedback, because we heard a lot about it when this episode came out. a lot of our listeners wrote in to ask us what the deal was, and that is hookworms hookworms yeah yeah um, basically the, the the episode was about a man who used hookworms as a way to treat certain conditions, and the the feedback we got was that the audience was supremely skeptical of this and if i understand correctly according to an update that you guys posted on your website the fda was equally suspicious of this person um i wonder if you can tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about your feelings about the the whole the hookworm story how you felt about it and if i guess if you feel that you guys have you know a responsibility to um to, to sort of triple check the the science of what's happening in these stories because it was a really fantastic story, but I think that a lot of people wondered if the science was quite right
0: right right well i i uh, uh, i I, 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 li- I like the story um, I, I stand by it. I could be wrong about this I mean so so definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't th- think that this guy was closed down because his science was shoddy um, necessarily. I think he was closed down because he was. His whole business was shady, frankly. Like he hadn't he hadn't gotten any clearances. He hadn't run it through any sort of the necessary approvals. But I mean, the fundamental scientific backing of do hookworms regulate the immune system, and do they do the things he's claiming they do? There's a fair number of people who have studied these and done it in a controlled way, not for sale, but just just for research purposes, and they they think he's right. Now, whether or not he should be administering it just out of his kitchen—that's another—that's another question. And so, I—we were profiling the guy, not—not not to advocate for his, um, for his product, uh, not at all. But we were—we found it—it it, it raises a very, very interesting hypothesis about, you know, um, cleanliness, about the the role, the really fascinating role that these critters could be. Like these are tiny, tiny critters, and the fact that they might have a very sophisticated uh, abilities to regulate our immune system and that we may have co-evolved with them. Uh, that was all fascinating to us. I could give less of a shit whether or not he sells his hookworms, And I hope we were, um, we expressed our skepticism, uh, strongly enough. I mean, if we didn't, then, then, you know, your, your list, the people who are complaining may have a point. Um, that's part of that tension that I, that I was talking about. I mean, I, you know, we're we're. You can find something fascinating, but not necessarily agree with it. I think it's worthy of it's a worthy profile. At the same time, I I hope we, it didn't come off like we were advocating for his. Yeah, for it's his, it's um,
1: really tricky. This is. Um I think a generic problem or a challenge, I should say, with non-scientists being science journalists, and e- even the ones that I greatly respect. Like I think you guys overall do a great job. There's ones like Carl Zimmer, who I think is just a fabulous science journalist. Uh, but yeah. the, I think where they often get into trouble is in is in seeing the real full context of a story like that, putting it into its proper perspective. So, for example, I w- the way my problem, I think, with the way that this guy's story was presented was, you know, his data was all very preliminary and basic science, and he was g- extrapolating from that way beyond, you know, the science that had been established to clinical claims. That was the problem with what he was doing, and you know, I'm not sure that an, an, a a non physician or non, you know, a medical researcher would necessarily see that or, or would understand that was the the nub of the problem with uh, with what he was doing. So and, and even a, mm-hmm. even a, if you mm-hmm. do your job really well as a journalist, you could still miss context like that. That's Do you, do you f- worry that that can sometimes happen, and, and how do you protect against it?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, you always worry. I mean, I still—I'm I, not sure that— maybe I didn't make my point just a second ago— we, He's not a researcher. We never presented him as a researcher. Um, there were researchers in that piece who who we, we did check their science, and we we think it's interesting and we think it's solid. You know, our intent was not to say this guy has a great idea that he and he has the evidence. It was more like here's a guy who's doing something a little bit strange, a little bit dangerous, a little bit interesting. Let's look into it. And as we looked into it, we thought, well, there there might be something here. I'm not saying go do it but uh there might be something here so um sure i mean yeah we miss context all the time but i mean i i know the dangers of getting things wrong and and uh you know it is it is a struggle at the end of the day between the storyteller and you and the person who wants to be as precise as possible um but there are whole parts of the process where we all we do is fact check you know all we do is just pretend to be You know, journalists with no sense of humor. Just so we know what we don't know, or we at least have we have a sense sense of the facts. You know, and so I I do feel fine about the hookworms piece. You know, if there are specific things within it, then you know, let me know.
1: Well, Jad, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the show. It's really been a great interview. Great, thank you. Thank
2: you,
0: Jad. It's time for Science or Fiction.
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Let's see if uh, I can sweep you guys two weeks in a row. What do you think? Uh. Not likely. It's not, it uh, is not likely. Are you against. are correct. Regression to the mean predicts that that's not going to happen this week. But we'll see. There is a theme this week. The theme is longevity. This is all about, all news items about making you live longer. Jay's area of expertise. Item number one A recent analysis shows that an introverted personality type is associated with a 25% increased risk of death from heart attack. Item number two, a new systematic review of studies shows that high levels of chocolate consumption is associated with a greater than one-third reduction in heart attacks. And item number three, a new study looking at cyclists shows that riding intensity rather than duration is favorably associated with longer life and reduced risk of heart attacks. Bob, go first.
5: Uh, All right. This is the one time I did like literally 40 seconds of research. Damn you, Irene! <laughs> okay, that was a song, wasn't it? Damn you, Irene! You, Irene! Oh, come on, Irene! Oh come boy, wait! You got to, Steve! You got to auto-tune that in post Um George George right. already on it. So we got um, introverted people associated with an increased risk of death from heart attack. Which kind of makes sense to me that the more outgoing and gregarious you, you are, the better it would be. But uh, so. That seems a little bit counterintuitive based on that. Uh, but let's look at the second one here. That uh, Back to chocolate here, chocolate consumption. So more chocolate, less heart attacks. Oh, boy. That certainly sounds nice. Um, I wonder if it still holds, if it's chocolate and peanut butter. The third one, though, I think I've got a problem with this third one. Um, writing intensity rather than duration. See, my, my inclination here is that intensity you know i've I've always heard that um that interval training is 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 best where you you know you could do a couple minutes of high intensity and then low intensity for a minute and then back up but uh for most people just doing anything even if it's i mean what was that recent news item fifteen fifteen minutes a day of of walking would uh was still you know very beneficial for lots of people uh ah damn um the introverted one, number one, is also in his. Um. All right, I'll just have to pick one here.
1: Yep, that's the name of the game. Uh, okay. Thanks for clearing
5: that up. Um, Actually,
1: the name of the game is science or fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Point <laughs> of the game is that you have
5: to pick one. Point of the <laughs> game, yes, but you'll notice that there's no mention of how much time I need to take to do that, so I'll take my sweet time. Yeah, well, you'd
2: much. think we would have changed that like four years ago. And the really,
5: show like, is Bob, only two, an hour and 20 minutes, minutes Bob. All right, I'll go, I'll go with my gut here and, um, and say heart. that the intensity, number three, the writing intensity rather than duration is fiction.
1: Okay.
3: Jay? Uh, okay. The analysis shows that the introverted person is more likely 25% increased risk of death of heart attacks. Now, now what does that mean? Are they sitting there like just frustrated and pissed off because they're afraid to, to do and say what they want? I mean, it could mean that they're leading a more stressful life. But at the same time, introverted people to me always seem to be a hell of a lot calmer than me. And I'm certainly not introverted and I'm certainly a stress case. But then, of course, that's my anecdote. All right. So that, I could see that there is a connection between between health and mental attitude and, and all that stuff. And I, I could see how that, that's possible. Uh, the second one about the third reduction in heart attacks. Associated with chocolate eating, I could see that too. We know there's chemicals in in chocolate that are beneficial, so I can see that that's possible. And then the last one, cyclists show that riding intensity rather than duration. So okay, this I, I have the same problem that Bob has. You know, if, you know, taking taking it to an extreme from what Steve is saying, like if you rode incredibly intense for two minutes. That's supposed to be better for you than say riding for an extended period of time. Like I, I mean, I, I know I can't just randomly throw in numbers here, but I'm like, okay, it's better to ride more intense for a shorter amount of time than a long term. That just doesn't make any sense. You, you get, you need to, you need to exercise a certain amount of time in order to get your, um, your heart rate up, and then you need to get your heart rate up for a certain amount of time to increase your metabolism. So this one just seems wrong to me. So I'll take that one as a fake.
1: Okay,
4: Evan. Um the introverted personality a 25% increased risk of death from heart attack. Ouch. That's significant to say the least. I I think that one is the one that is most surprising of these 3 and is I think therefore likely to be one that is true. Um so the next one about chocolate consumption uh, associated with a greater than one-third reduction in heart attacks. Um, I don't know if we talked about dark chocolate on the show before. I think we have. Dark Studies. matter, a little dark matter, a little dark chocolate's the same thing. It's good for you. It's good for you. The last one about the cyclists, Jay. I think what you said was right, or at least how I understood it um, to be, and maybe we're both wrong. Riding intensity rather than duration. So they're looking at cyclists. So I wonder what cyclists are that professional cyclists or people who like cycle as a recreation, like Rebecca. You're not a professional cyclist, Rebecca, are you? No, I'm not. Okay. You consider yourself (laughs) a recreational (laughs) cyclist.
2: Yeah, I'm an amateur level cyclist. I
4: think that I'm going to have to go with the cyclist one. Because I find the chocolate consumption one extremely appealing and I kind of have a desire for and wanting for that to be true. So I'm going to let my inner nature kind of take over and determine that one's correct and therefore cyclist is fiction.
1: Okay, Rebecca.
2: Okay. I I was going to go with uh, the cyclist one as well until Bob said the thing about interval training. and Because my initial thought was that Intense activity would be more likely to cause Causing heart anxiety. attacks, yeah. But interval training actually is, as Bob said, really good for uh, for your health. So now I'm more inclined to believe that one. The chocolate one, sure, like, you know, chocolate has tannins or whatever. Every other day, chocolate, coffee, and red wine are said to, you know, either cause cancer, cure cancer, or whatever, which is also why I really don't know any of these because I don't pay attention to these news stories at all because they mean absolutely nothing. Like one one study means nothing, so I hate these. So thanks for nothing, Steve. Yep. But that leaves us with the first one, with which originally I I thought seemed fair enough that introverted people uh, would be more likely to die from a heart attack. My thought at first was, well, introverted people less likely to have partners, maybe. And, you know, it's been shown that having a partner in your life helps with things like that. Like if you have a heart attack, then they can get to you faster and save your life. But introverted personalities, it doesn't mean that they don't have partners. And, you know, after thinking about it an extra minute, I realized that introverted people, yeah, like Jay said, are actually usually pretty chill. So I think that that
1: one's the fiction. Okay. So all right. So you all agree that a new systematic review of studies that shows that high levels of chocolate consumption is associated with a greater than one third reduction in heart attacks is science. You all think that one is science, and that one Uh is sweep, sweep, science. Ah No sweep. No No double sweep. No double sweep. No sweep. No. No. Yeah, this is a review of studies, not a one-off study, and they they looked back at uh, a number of high-quality studies and showed that there is a very robust association. When you look at the highest consumers of chocolate in these studies to the lowest consumers of chocolate, there is a statistically significant association with a reduction in heart attacks. Now, this is a correlational study only, does not establish cause and effect, it might be that chocolate eating is predictive of something else that is protective of having heart attacks. Although um, the speculation is that uh, chocolate contains anti-inflammatory properties, and that that actually anti-inflammatory properties strongly correlates with uh, a reduction in heart attack risk. Sweet. Um, they also mention antioxidants. Oh. I'm not as much impressed with that as uh, you know having antioxidants in chocolate. But uh, yes, yeah, so, but either of those could be uh, playing a role. This they analyzed seven studies involving over hundred thousand patients, participants, to come up with these results. Um, the highest levels of chocolate consumption were associated with a thirty-seven percent reduction in cardiovascular disease and a twenty-nine percent reduction in stroke compared with lowest levels.
4: Yeah, but the diabetes was off the charts. Well, though. they
1: say that you know they they wouldn't use this. Systematic review of studies in order to recommend that people start consuming a lot of chocolate because it contains a lot of fat and calories. So um, you don't know that it's worth all the extra calories, right? Because again, this wasn't; these are not interventional studies; they're correlational, so it doesn't really tell you about other things. So maybe we do need to do an interventional study, and maybe we need to try to isolate the things in chocolate and then give right. and then study there those effects. Yeah, cocoa bean. All right, let's go to number one. A recent analysis shows that an introverted personality type is associated with a 25% increased risk of death from heart attack. Rebecca, you think this one is the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science, and this one is the fiction. Well done, uh-huh. Rebecca. Whoa. Nice. Good job.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Um, so this this study actually showed that there is a significant risk of increased heart attack from people who are angry from anger. Yeah, there's a growing awareness that psychosocial factors play a major role in triggering and modulating the progression of ischemic heart disease. And this was looking at uh, essentially people who have, are angry all the time and they had a significant increase in their risk of heart disease. That, that was the study I was basing it on. However, you know, I... I just chose introversion I tr- I was trying to pick something innocuous to take its place but then since then I I combed through the literature on PubMed to, just to make sure it was false and actually the introversion thing's a little complicated it, overall there there is no uh confirmed correlation but there are, I did find this one study again the, when when I looked at re- systematic reviews they said it, it it's not established, so I don 't think you could say that this is established, but they said there was, was one study that used introversion among other things as a mark marker for anxiety, and anxiety correlates with increased risk of heart attack. So that wasn't this study. This was like a three-year-old study. And and the systematic reviews basically said no, said it was inconsistent and and we can't really make any conclusions about that. Anxiety, yeah, pretty much. Type A personality, you know, still less consistent. Depression, yes. You know, again, anger, yes. But uh, so, you know, it's possible that introversion is an independent risk factor for heart attack. It just wasn't a recent study and, and is not something that's clearly established. So. But let's go on to number three. A new study looking at cyclists shows that riding intensity rather than duration is favorably associated with longer life. And that one is science.
2: Hooray for me. Yeah. me forever!
1: So this was a, a study done <laughs> in Paris, France, conducted among cyclists, uh-huh. of course. Actually, it was presented in Paris. The study was done in Copenhagen. Showed that it is oh. the relative intensity and not the duration of cycling – That is the most important predictor of reduction in coronary heart disease. The the study presented showed that uh, if you looked at the with the greatest intensity, they survived 5.3 years longer than uh, cyclists with an average intensity uh, who survived 2.9 years longer than those with the lower intensity so yeah the the men who the cyclists who survived the, the similar numbers but less intense for the women but the the cyclists who had the greater intensity of, of of uh riding survived longer than those with longer duration but lower intensity. There you go, but it is one study
2: even though I won, I still have to say that these. Yeah. These studies are, they're not useless to the field, but I feel like they are useless to the general public because the general public tries to then adjust their behavior accordingly, and then the next study comes out and says, well, actually... Yeah,
1: it's always more complicated, especially when you look at any of this epidemiological shit. Absolutely. That's why I was like, don't run out and start shoving your face with chocolate. Yes. No, 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 yeah, no, I'm going to do that anyway. Yeah, uh, you, know, you, you might want to do that for other reasons. And yeah, they are right, the bulk of the research shows that interval training is, is that's the consensus at this point in terms of what you should be doing. And wow. and yes, there's a lot to be said for duration of exercising as well. But among cyclists, this is what this data showed. The other thing is, this was all comparing cyclists to other cyclists. It may not be relevant to the average population, to the general public. Which is true. Maybe didn't cyclists say. live 10 years right. <laughs> less than the general public. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. So say, a new study looking at cyclists, what was unclear about that, Jay?
3: These are cyclists. The audience and myself know what you pulled here today. (laughs) (laughs) They're not
4: stupid, you know.
3: (laughs) Well, Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? Yes, I have a quote. This quote was sent in from a listener named Andrew Gold from Canberra. And the quote is, The difference between faith and insanity is that faith is the ability to hold firmly to a conclusion that is incompatible with the evidence. Whereas insanity is the ability to hold firmly to a conclusion that is incompatible with the evidence. See what I did there? Yeah, the yeah, yeah. That's clever. Yeah, I, think, yes. I think I get that. I think, yeah, I, I, think I get that, yeah.
1: clever. That was a good quote by
0: William Harwood.
1: So, SGU24 coming up. We already have a number of people who have very generously sponsored one hour of the show. You can do the same thing. You could donate to the SGU or to the show, or you could actually sponsor an hour of our 24-hour show by going to theskepticsguide.org, clicking on the big SGU 24, and that will take you to the SGU 24 page, which will have that we will have the event actually streaming there. Uh, we will have more information as time as time goes on, and you can donate to the effort, including sponsoring an hour. So uh, Please consider doing so. We already have nine hours have already been snapped up, and they're going fast. Yep. Yep, and we will we will uh, read your name and even a message from you uh, during mm-hmm. the hour that you sponsor.
4: And if you don't supply us with a message, we'll make up.
1: We'll one make for that's you. right. We'll be happy to supply one ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely.
3: John from but Washington the, said, "But we have some cool things for the show, though. Uh, we have a lot of audience interaction plans." And simple things like if you 're watching t- the show and um i 'll give you a, a quick teaser here we 're going to come up with a list of things that, if somebody breaks, like for example, if somebody falls asleep, an audience member can catch it where maybe one of us in the studio won't catch it, right so you could you could twitter us we'll read it we'll have someone monitoring the twitter or you could tweet us, and then we'll, or you could tweet us, yeah. What did I say? You could Twitter yeah. us? Yeah. That's totally yeah, different. That's said. a completely different activity.
1: Actually, if you, if you, if you want, <laughs>
3: send in a video of you Twittering someone and we'll analyze it. Yeah. We, need, we, need to con- we need to conjugate
4: the uh, verb Twitter. Twitter. So, Tweet. so
3: let's say that you find or notice something that somebody did on the list of things that they that, that you can't Your do. Your Twitter page. Then it. we have a consequence which is very fun. And I don't want to reveal what the consequences or, or series of consequences, but it, it's a game that we're going to play, you see, and you can get involved here any way yes. you like.
1: And we have an excellent lineup of special guests who will be joining us, including Adam Savage will be joining us, awesome. Mythbuster himself, yeah, as well as an all-star lineup of skeptics from around the globe. Very excited. Very cool. So tune in September 23rd and 24th, starting at 8 p.m. on September 23rd. Eastern Time. Well, thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. I'll see you all at DragonCon. Yes, we will see you at DragonCon. Yay! And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe.
0: The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website. Or send an email to info at If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.